Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, the House prepares to sit as the Coalition Government launches into its agenda. The priorities of our government are no secret. We have been very clear to the people of New Zealand that we will rebuild the economy to tackle the cost of living. We will restore law and order and we will deliver better public services. Then, a warning from a top clinical psychiatrist about the state of our mental health care. The question now is, do we refocus? How as a society do we determine where our limited resources should go? And when the resources didn't exist, to identify kids struggling with literacy, this kuda took the lead. We had a tamaiti early last year that we suspected um, may have been uh, autistic, and so we approached ministry and um, the local educational psychologist were told it was around about a three-year wait. We will have that story for you shortly. After 40 shows and an election, this is our last programme for 2023. And as we go to air this morning, the 54th Parliament is preparing to open for the first time. Their first order of business will be to appoint the Speaker before the Governor-General makes her speech from the throne. The House will then sit under urgency as the new Coalition Government pursues an aggressive agenda before the summer break. A few minutes ago, I spoke with the new Leader of the House and I began by asking Chris Bishop what will be passed before Christmas. So Parliament's going to start sitting on Tuesday. We've got a whole bunch of procedural stuff to go through, electing the Speaker, having the state opening, the speech from the throne, first question time, and then uh, from the second week of the House sitting period, uh, we'll start to legislate. Uh, so the first bill that the government will move uh, will be uh, the legislation to return the Reserve Bank to a single focus uh, on uh, price stability, keeping inflation uh, under 3%, uh, and so we want to put that through all stages, uh, and we can do that by Christmas. Quite a simple change uh, to the Reserve Bank of New Zealand Act. Uh, and we're also going to repeal the fair pay uh, legislation, or so-called fair pay legislation. Again, quite a simple uh, repeal bill. Uh, we're also going to repeal the uh, Natural Built Environment Act and the Spatial mm. Planning Act. That's Labor's um, changes to the RMA, which got passed in October. So, uh, again, that... that, um, that those issues have been well ventilated. Again, quite a simple uh, repeal bill uh, and also the clean car discount, uh, which is the, uh, the so-called ute tax. Um, so we'll get that out of the way by Christmas and that's, that's due to stop right. uh, on the 31st of December. So it requires legislation to do. You're going to be legislating using urgency. And of course, in the past, at times, you have been a vocal critic of the use of urgency. Why is urgency justified in this case? Yes, I have, and, uh, and I should signal that over the uh, life of this parliament and this government, uh, we will seek to use uh, urgently, sparingly, and where it's required. And in this instance, I think it's justified for, for two reasons. Number one, uh, on all of the uh, legislation we're moving, uh, the three parties sought a mandate for uh, at the election, and actually explicitly in the case of at least National and Act said uh, that the uh, Natural Built Environment Act, for example, should be repealed by Christmas, um, given it had only just been passed, and mm. we sought a mandate for that at the election, and we received that mandate from New Zealanders. And then the second thing I would say to you is that a lot of these uh, bills are, are repeal bills, uh, and in some cases they repeal legislation that's only just been passed. So in the case of the RMA, for example, or the Natural Built Environment Act, that only got passed by the Parliament in October, so mm. the last Parliament went through a long and convoluted process to pass it. Um, our 
uh, mandate at the election was to repeal it, and it's a simple repeal bill. These are not technical bills that require you know, deep dives at select committee, lots of consultation. They're, they're relatively simple, and that's why we're, we're comfortable advancing yeah, them Yeah, like by that. my count, at least 20 of the actions listed in your 100-day plan are plans to repeal or replace or remove legislations to, to, to stop work that's underway. When will New Zealanders see the first piece of legislation passed that actually builds something new, if you like? Uh, you'll see legislation in the uh, in the new year. Um, so our focus before Christmas is on uh, getting stuff off the statute books that we, we just want to stop work on. So yeah. the Natural Built Environment um, Act, for example, has a huge swathe of things that councils have to do unless it's no longer the law. So we need to get it off the statute books. The clean car discount, we've, we've signalled we want that to stop on 31st December, 1st of January, New Year, it requires legislation. So there's a bit of time pressure on some of these things uh, before Christmas. In mm. the new year, uh, you'll start to see legislation um, around uh, Three Waters, uh, for example. Uh, you'll start to see legislation potentially around setting up a national uh, infrastructure agency. Uh, there's uh, um, some of the things around uh, law and order uh, and the youth justice space. Uh, there's a lot of work that's already um, been started by ministers on that. And mm. so uh, let me tell you, when we come back in the new year, uh, there'll be a very busy legislative period as well. So, so when you look at those big reforms that are being repealed, and I think the likes of RMA 2.0 and Three Waters, when can New Zealanders expect comprehensive replacements to be in place for Three Waters and the RMA? Uh, we'll be making further announcements about that in due course. Uh, Simeon Browns, uh, who's the Minister of Local Government, uh, alongside myself, we're doing some um, quite heavy lifting. We've already taken uh, advice on uh, how to get started on that Three Waters replacement legislation. It's part of our 100-day plan to uh, introduce legislation to repeal and replace uh, the Three Waters uh, regime. So we're working at pace uh, on that, and we'll be making announcements um, around that. On the RMA and the resource management space more generally, I'm thinking about it in terms of three phases. The first is get rid of the Natural Built Environment Act, Labor's um, laws. That'll be done by Christmas. In the new year, um, I will be bringing legislation to the Parliament to establish a fast-track regime for consents, uh, and I'm working alongside Shane Jones uh, and other ministers uh, on that, and you can expect to see that legislation uh, in the new year, but that will make it easier to get started on infrastructure projects, for example, uh, and you'll see that in the new year. And then the third phase of the resource management um, reforms is to start on replacement legislation mm. for uh, the, the RMA, and uh, that will be a longer-term process. Um, the aim is to have that into law by the end of the three years, uh, but we need to do some quite heavy heavy policy lifting on that uh, and do quite a lot of consultation on that. So that will be a more medium to long-term project. So the first bill of the new government will return the Reserve Bank of New Zealand to a single remit focused on controlling inflation and price stability. It means that they no longer will have a remit to consider unemployment. What will be the impact of that bill on New Zealand's unemployment rate next year? Uh, well, um, th there would be economists who would be able to give you the exact specifics on that, and it's um, in Nicola Willis's area. Mm. Uh, but what I would say to you is that for many years, post the Reserve Bank Act 1989, the Reserve Bank was world-leading, actually, in the sense of um, being focused on one thing and not confusing itself with different missions. Uh, it was world-leading because it focused on uh, price stability, initially the 0 to 2% uh, mm. band for inflation, uh, Laterly moved to uh, one to three percent, and our view is that keeping the Reserve Bank focused on 
uh, what it should do, which is monetary policy mm. uh, focused on getting inflation down, uh, is is the best course of action. We sort of mandate for it at the election, and we uh, intend to implement yeah, it. But, but I mean, the, the yin to the OCR's yang is that typically a higher OCR, which is used to target inflation, means a higher unemployment rate. And if your government's contention is that the Reserve Bank has been distracted by looking at the unemployment issue over the last couple of years, then surely the flip side to that is that by focusing solely on inflation, we're going to expect a much higher unemployment rate. I think the point is that uh, governments should focus on the fiscal levers uh, and other policy parameters that you need to take into consideration. The Reserve Bank needs to focus on its job, which is uh, monetary policy. Uh, and the best thing we can do for this economy in the medium to long term, uh, and frankly in the short term as well, is get inflation down. Because once inflation gets into the arteries of, a, of an economy, like it has done uh, over the last few years uh, in New Zealand, it is uh, wealth destructive uh, for so many people. We've seen wages not keeping up uh, with inflation. We've seen uh, the savings of people uh, erode. Um, we've seen uh, businesses not being able to plan. You know, inflation is the scourge uh, of modern economies. We need to get it down, uh, and that's why we want the Reserve Bank focused on it. Uh, and of course, we've got a whole range of other productivity enhancing uh, reforms and measures that we want to implement over the next few years uh, to drive economic growth and also productivity growth in the economy. In your first 100 days, you will repeal those smoke-free changes. Compared to business as usual, do you accept that those changes would have saved lives? Uh, no, I think the, the, the evidence is not there on that. Um, actually, uh, the, the changes are highly speculative. Actually, we're opposed, as I understand it, by uh, some people in the, uh, the sort of anti-smoking, smoke-free uh, movement. Th things like, for example, having one store in Northland that can sell uh, cigarettes, I mean, that store would have to be Fort Knox. It would end up being targets of ram raids and, uh, and theft and crime. And the idea that... Um, just having one store in Northland won't lead to a black market um, in, in tobacco and cigarettes. Where, I think where is, does that is one fanciful. store in Northland so come it, from? Well, the, the government published... Um, uh, uh, basically, the, the plan, as I understand it, I'm by no means an expert mm. on it, but as I understand it, the government published a plan to significantly reduce net down the number of yeah. retail outlets where you could buy um, cigarettes. And um, my understanding is that they basically proposed um, one store for the, for the Northland region. Um, so people would have to travel, you know, vast distances I, I, I to, I went through the list. To, to cigarettes if they were a smoker. Yeah, I went through the list that was produced by the Director General of Health in September of this year. So there are going to be 600 stores nationwide, right? I went through the list. Uh, the de yeah, Director right. General had to consider population, smoking rates in different parts of New Zealand. By my count, Northland would have 35 tobacco outlets. Yeah, well, I, I haven't seen that list, um, but my understanding is that, and, and, and Northland is one of those examples, but there are other parts of the but country you just said one. You, and, and have, you just said one. Hang on a second. You, you just a said one. seller of tobacco. No, but you just said, you just said one, and that's, that's yeah, what Yeah, that's the, right. There'd be, there'd, be one, there'd be one store in Northland. That's my understanding, yes. That's what the Prime Minister said the other day as well, but the Director General of Health has published a list with 35 for Northland, so hardly starved. Well, I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't seen that list, um, but there's no but, doubt but, but that so if you, you significantly reduce down the number of outlets from six... 
Yeah, that's right. That's my understanding is there'll be one store in Northland and the and significantly reduced number around the country and in, and in lots of other parts of the country, uh, you would have just you know one one or two potential stores. Uh, that's what happens when you when you have a, a licensing regime. Chris, I've just told you there are thirty five you know, in Northland. Reduce the numbers. Well, I, I, I don't know how much further we can take this. My understanding is there's just one available in Northland, but regardless, uh, you're going to see significantly reduced numbers uh, of tobacco outlets, and our view is that that will lead to a black market and it will lead to uh, ram raids and those stores becoming Fort Knox. It's the exact opposite of what we want. Uh, I read Treasury's regulatory impact statement for the smoke-free Aotearoa action plan. It suggested the plan would result in $5 billion in health spending savings, $5 billion in productivity gains, and that the plan would save thousands of lives. You, you say there is no evidence um, that, that that would be the effect. But, but your government has said that other changes it would introduce would help to reduce smoking rates instead. What, what sort of changes might help to reduce smoking rates that your government would support? Well, New Zealand's smoking rates have been on the decline actually since the last national-led government. Um, the national uh, government of 2008 onwards significantly raised excise uh, on uh, tobacco, um, introduced... Uh, plain packaging, uh, for example, as well, a range of other uh, amendments to our smoke-free laws. So our smoking rates have been declining, and we want them to continue to decline uh, as well. We just don't think um, limited number of stores, uh, the other measures that the government um, has proposed are the right way to, to go about doing that, but we do want to see fewer people smoking and taking up smoking, and actually that is uh, mm. what is happening. The other thing that's happened is uh, vaping, of course, um, has become a an alternative to, to smoking, significantly uh, better for you than, uh, than, than nicotine-based uh, tobacco with, uh, with all of the health complications that come from that. So um, there's, there's challenges with vaping as well because, um, you know, some of the evidence is that young kids um, are, are taking it up and, you know, we, we, uh, we are concerned about that and I know a lot of parents watching are concerned about that as well. So mm. it's about how you find that, get that balance right between having uh, vaping uh, and other products like that as alternative mechanisms for people to get off smoking, uh, but making sure also that people aren't taking it up, particularly young kids um, as well. So getting the licensing mm. regime around that uh, is really important. I don't think we've got it right at the moment, frankly. I've got a, um, a vaping store that's opening uh, 380 metres from uh, one of my local primary schools in uh, Wanuiamata in my own electorate, and I know a lot of people are really concerned about that. So I don't think we've got the regime right there yet, and I know Shane Retty is doing some work on that. Mm. It, finally, Nicola Willis is planning a mini-budget before Christmas. Will that include changes that require legislation? And if so, when will that legislation be passed? Uh, you'll have to wait and see uh, when it comes to uh, Nicola's uh, mini-budget before Christmas. Uh, and so I'm not going to um, give you a, a yay or a nay on that. You'll just have to wait and see. Uh, but she certainly is intending to publish a mini-budget before Christmas, yeah. That's the new Leader of the House, Chris Bishop. Now, just to confirm... In September, the Director-General of Health published this, the maximum numbers of approved smoke tobacco retail premises permitted in areas of New Zealand under the smoke-free law changes. As I explained, the list considered population, travel times and smoking rates. There were just under 600 stores nationwide, including a total of 35 outlets across Northland. Not one, as the Minister believed and as the Prime Minister claimed in his post-CAB press conference this week. We have just posted the list to our X feed, our Twitter feed, so you can check it out for yourself. Coming up, remember this. Jacinda Ardern's resignation was only 10 months ago, but the political dynamics in New Zealand have fundamentally changed since.
When Labour came to power in 2017, improving New Zealand's mental health services was a major focus. But six years on, a top forensic psychiatrist is questioning what progress has actually been made and urging the new government to reassess priorities in mental health. Dr Eric Monasterio worked in the public health service for 25 years. He gave evidence in the recent Lauren Dickerson trial, but he says he grew so exasperated with the state of the public health service and support for acute mental disorders that he left. Look, it's, it's a sad story for me because I'm a product of the public service. I finished my medical training in New Zealand. I did my specialty training and subspecialty training in forensic psychiatry. And then I worked in the forensic service for 25 years, eventually moving into a position of leadership. But the last five to seven years, I've just seen this decay in the mental health services in New Zealand. And I did everything in my power to try to change that. And from within the system, I couldn't achieve that change. And therefore, as a leader, I felt that if I couldn't achieve the change while I was leading, and in a leadership position, I was seeing intolerable situations. Mm. The only option available to me was to resign and eventually try to work from outside of the system, if you like. When you say decay, what do you mean? Look, what I mean is that as we're sitting here in the studio, there are hundreds of people with serious mental illness living on the streets and increasingly in prison. And we're talking about a degree of psychiatric pathology at the extreme end. Mm. Now, in New Zealand, we have the Mental Health Act, which whilst it's criticised, it's also the piece of legislation that ensures that people with serious mental disorders are identified and treated appropriately. And as I said, there are dozens of people who will qualify for the Mental Health Act and who are languishing in prison or on the streets. And let's compare this to other services mm within the health system. If you have an acute severe mental disorder and qualify for the Mental Health Act, it's the equivalent in a surgical service to somebody who needs an operation here and now. Mm. Let's say it's the equivalent of an acute appendicitis. Now, no matter how stretched the health service is, if you turn up to ED and you have an acute appendicitis, you will get your operation. If you have a myocardial infarct or a heart attack, you will get treatment for that. The equivalent for mental health services is if you meet criteria for the act and you have something which is comparable to those surgical and medical needs, you're not getting the care. Mm -hmm. And often these days, you're either living on the streets or you're remanded to custody. And those approaches almost guarantee a worse outcome for those disorders mm -hmm and an extraordinary level of human suffering. What is it about the last seven years that has led to the decay? In general, we talk about a crisis in health. Psychiatry's never been particularly good at securing and ring-fencing as resources. So relative to medical specialties, we're underfunded. Mm. But increasingly, we've just failed to keep pace with population growth, with the complexity of issues in the community and services are beleaguered. Mm. People are leaving because it's, it's a tough environment to work in. And me and the public, self, public service, after 25 years, I'm leaving myself. I never wanted to leave, mm. but I found that I just couldn't stay in that situation and prop up a system where it was 
you know, causing so much harm. We... The, the, I mean, this, this will just come as a surprise to many of our viewers who will recall, of course, that over the last six years, over the previous government, there was a lot of focus and resource put into mental health generally. So there was funding, but there was also the inquiry into mental health and addiction. What has been the result of that attention and focus? Look, the mental health and addictions inquiry set itself a broad scope. And as its starting point, it set itself the challenge <clears throat> to look beyond serious mental illness to mental distress. Yeah. And the broadness of its focus means that at the more severe end of the spectrum, those with severe mental illness have actually been, not entirely, but to some extent sidelined and ignored. So it's one of the unintended consequences of the mental health inquiry is that the expectation now has been set so high that those with severe mental illness are actually missing out. So is that a case of um, spreading resources over a broader group of people rather than m maybe defining those resources for people at the more acute end of the scale? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it, there's an ideological basis of it. Mm. And, and you've got to be careful that ideological um, directions don't have unintended consequences. Mm. And I think there is unintended consequences here. But as a starting point, before the mental health and addictions inquiry, we were already signalling to the government and to the ministry that there were insufficient resources to manage those at the severe end of the spectrum. Mm. And if you look at the mental health and addictions inquiry, it proposes at the outset that the 3% of seriously mentally disordered in New Zealand were already well catered to. But that wasn't the case. The ministry was aware of that, and mm. the government was aware of that, because we provided them with plenty of information to highlight to them the unmet need for those at the more severe end of the spectrum, particularly those in prisons mm. who could not get into hospital. That's right. So to what extent are we incarcerating those experiencing severe mental distress or disorder? Yeah, look, and this is perhaps one of the most concerning aspects of what my job has been, because I am a forensic psychiatrist, mm. um, I work in prisons, and what we're seeing in New Zealand is that prisons are now becoming the new psychiatric institutions. So we are incarcerating the mentally disordered. And often they're in prison over trivial charges simply because there are no beds available in the public health system. So it's become a new norm to place somebody into prison rather than to take them into hospital. It's a bit like going back to my metaphor of the person with an acute appendicitis. Mm. Somebody with that level of need is going to prison. Mm. And the environment in prison will almost guarantee a worse outcome for them. Yeah, talk to us about that. I realise that there is <coughs> perhaps no one outcome, but, but what would be the typical consequences for someone experiencing severe mental disorder who's incarcerated? So generally, a severe mental disorder, the most common um, diagnosis, if you like, it's a psychotic disorder. Mm. So those are the people that are having delusional beliefs. They're out of touch with reality. They're often persecuted. They think government agencies or the devil is talking about them persecuting against them. Mm. They often hear voices. They're distracted by what we call perceptual disturbances. So as they're out of touch with reality, they often are disruptive in their behaviours. Mm. They don't engage well. They're often become disenfranchised from their families. They either end up living on the streets or behaving oddly. They come before the court. Very often, would sufficient resources be available, they would go into hospital. Mm. But if a bed's not available, they may go into prison.
And prison is a tough environment, right? So if you go into prison and you behave oddly, you're at risk to yourself and potentially to others. So it's not rare for somebody with a psychotic disorder that then end up in a part of the prison called the intervention and support unit, mm. where they're subject to isolation for 23 or 24 hours a day. And they're held in cells, which you couldn't design a worse health, mm. a cell for somebody with a serious mental disorder. They're isolated from others. They often don't have a window to the outside world. If their behavior is disturbed enough, they won't even have a toilet. Mm. They're locked down 23 hours a day. So you imagine a person in an ISU cell, hearing voices, having paranoid beliefs, believing that somebody's going to come in and harm them, mm. and you leave them there 23 hours a day. The staff in prison have not been trained to manage that group of people. Mm. Now, that isolation we know unequivocally leads mm. to worse outcomes for people with serious mental illness. And they may be there for weeks Mm. waiting to come into hospital, and at times they never get into hospital at all. When you left the DHB, what was done to understand why you left? Very little. I didn't have an exit interview. I did signal my concerns mm. to the DHB, and I'm not here um, to discuss my dissatisfaction about why I left the public health service. I'm here to implore people to look for a solution. Mm. And the solutions will come when we understand why we're in this mess. And part of that is to talk to people who are leaving the service to understand why it is that we're leaving. If you don't understand the basis of the problem, you'll never solve that problem. Mm. And it would be helpful for Te Whātua to tell us how many specialists mm. are leaving the public health service. Because when they leave, they take decades of experience with them, which is not easily replaced. Mental health is particularly unique because it's got a social cultural context that we need to understand. And psychiatrists are trained to understand the social cultural mm. context of New Zealand. So their expertise is not easily replaced by psychiatrists coming from overseas. We need to understand why they're leaving and we need to do something about and it. And is your experience that <coughs> other psychiatrists are leaving the public health system? Oh, I know they are. Mm. Uh, I know they are and they're doing it in increasingly large numbers. And why do they tell you that is? Why do your colleagues say they're leaving? Look, I don't want to put words into my colleagues' mouth, but we reflect on the situation and there is a consensus of agreement. Mm. And the, the difficulty is, is there's a lack of good, effective leadership that would make us feel confident that there is a way through this difficult situation. Mm. Hey, look, people will tough out the hard times if you have a plan to mm. eventually get to a better outcome. I don't think we have that level of leadership. Division isn't there. So people get burnt out, they get frustrated, and they move on. Mm. And in mental health in particular, I think this is very telling because psychiatry is not the most glorified of medical specialties. It's certainly not the highest paying. It takes anywhere between 12 and 14 years to reach the status of a junior consultant psychiatrist. And in my experience, that people that go into that profession have a high level of conscience and a high level of engagement to help those who are most disadvantaged in our community. So if those people are leaving who are very altruistic by nature, there is something going amiss here. Mm. What would be your message to the incoming government as to where their focus should be when it comes to mental health? We need to listen to our staff. We need to establish the level of unmet need. 
we need to look at how many people who have had contact with specialist mental health services are ending up in prison. So if you've got a history of contact with specialist mental health services, mm. how many of those people are ending up in prison and why are they there? And that, that will give you an estimation of the unmet need at the most severe end of the spectrum. Mm. And you need adequate leadership to identify where the problems sit, stratify the importance of addressing each issue and then have a plan moving forward. You talked at the start of the interview uh, about focus shifting over the last few years from the acute end, mental disorders, into people experiencing mental distress as well. Is it possible under our current system to resource both of those, to make sure that actually things at the acute end of the scale are well resourced, but also people experiencing mental distress get the help they need? Look, and that, that is a good question and a challenging question because before the mental health and addictions inquiry, we already knew we were woefully short of staff. Mm. In 2013, Professor Des Gorman advised the government that there would be a nursing crisis in New Zealand because we were not training sufficient people in nursing. Mm. The median age of nurse were in their 50s, so in the next decade, they were going to reach retirement age. And even though there was a prediction of this crisis, very little was done. Mm. And now here we are, where we are woefully short of nurses, and here we have a mental health and addictions inquiry, which has expanded the focus, promised a lot to the community, but we were always short-staffed to even meet the most severe end of needs. How can we manage such a broad mm. range of need? Mm. So it is really challenging. The question now is, do we refocus? How as a society do we determine where our limited resources should go? Is it acceptable to place somebody in custody who's got a serious mental illness and they're extremely distressed and then be held in situations where they're subject essentially to sensory deprivation for 23 hours a day? Is that not something that needs to be urgently addressed? it breaches many legal standards and agreements that New Zealand's a signatory to. I think it's illegal to do it, by the way, but it is happening every day. That is Dr Eric Monasterio. Now, we asked Te Whatu Order exactly how many psychiatrists have left the public service in recent years. They told us the request will have to be treated as an Official Information Act request, so we are still waiting to hear the numbers. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, you can find us on X or on Facebook. Next on Q&A, hot takes from a huge year. Our panel considers the political shifts of 2023 and the changes that are coming in the next few weeks. I know what this job takes and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. That was how the 2023 political year began. The then Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, announcing her resignation just 10 months on. And the dynamics in our politics have shifted substantially. We are finishing the year with a three-party coalition, a new Prime Minister and an aggressive legislative agenda, which will unpick many of Labour's biggest reforms. Here to consider the shift is our final panel for 2023. Janae Tibshraney is NZME's Wellington Business Editor. Liam here is a member of the National Party and Labour's Joe Bartley is an Auckland Councillor. Kia ora koutou. thanks for being with us. Kia ora. Let's start off by just considering that shift. And Liam, we can start with you. 
since January, Jacinda Ardern's resignation, how much have political dynamics changed? Well, I think um, it's really important to make a distinction between events, all right, so there have been a lot of events this year, and the overall tr forces and trends that were sort of shaping this election. So I take the point, it's true that uh, at the time of Ardern's resignation, you know, Labour's still slightly ahead and continued to be ahead until about May, but from the king tide of the 2020 election, you saw this continual erosion of support for Labour. I think when, uh, when you had Hipkins come in, you had Labour getting a bounce, mm. um, but you know, the gravity reasserts itself, right? And the, the forces and trends that shaped this election were those economic issues, it was the cost of living, it was interest, it was those sorts of things. That's what determined what happened. What's your sense, Joe? Well, um, I have a Labour-branded car, so I have a lot of people come up to me and give me their opinion. Uh, and from what people were saying to me, they used to support Labour, uh, but it was the COVID lockdowns that really got them. And that's why this election they decided they weren't going to vote national. They weren't going to go that far, but they just weren't going to vote. So, uh, you know, I think that that probably would be a lot of people feeling that way about mm. it was the COVID and it was the lockdowns. Yeah. Yeah, and look, that's also the difference between the vibe in Wellington and in Auckland. I'm based in Wellington, and it's actually uh, upbeat there. Obviously, the public sector's been going great. You go to a bar any night of the week, pretty much, and it's busy. Mm. Uh, compared to Auckland, I think, as you say, Joe, people are really scarred by those lockdowns, and even though it's been a while, uh, those scars are still there. Can I just add, Janae and I actually talked about this at a... Victoria University event a couple of weeks ago. Those of us outside of Auckland, we totally underestimated how um, how lasting that second lockdown effect was. You know, it, we didn't get a sense of it in the rest of the country. What about some of the economic factors at play? Given the state of the economy and the struggles over inflation at the moment, was this shift inevitable, do you think, Janine? Yeah, I think so. I think we shouldn't um, underestimate the impact of COVID. The changes that we saw to our economy were enormous to think that we shut the economy or, you know, we shut borders down. We had huge supply chain issues, pumped a lot of stimulus in. That doesn't come for free. And we are still definitely in this period of, of I guess, the, the hang over from that uh, continuing on so for sure you know people vote on back pocket issues mm. right if prices are going up your mortgage repayments are going up you know th those are the key things mm. uh, people vote on and, and, it's, and it's inevitable and it's not going away so National still still faces a challenge around that. So going back to January Chris Hipkins became Prime Minister he immediately sought to distinguish himself from his predecessor but of course he had no end of issues with members of his cabinet. Have a look at this. Stuart Nash has fundamentally breached my trust and the trust of his cabinet colleagues. I left a message for Mecca, I would expect, um, if there was anything significant happening in that area, that she would give me a call and let me so know that. This morning I have advised the Governor-General to accept Michael Wood's resignation as a minister. This afternoon I have worked to reallocate Kitty Allen's ministerial portfolios across existing ministers. So when you consider some of those personnel issues, Joe, how much did that impact Labor's fortunes? I mean, of course, you know, people see that and they think, oh, is, it a, is the ship going well if people are resigning? So I can understand why people would think, oh, there's, you know, there's, there's some major issues going on there. But if I could just go back to your question about um, the financial hangover... Mm. And what we've seen from COVID and what we've seen in our communities after that lockdown is a lot of our young people having to go to work while they're at school mm. uh, because their parents lost their jobs during, um, the, you know, during the COVID response. So in terms of the financial hangout or the financial hangover, hangover yeah. it's ongoing. You know, like um, so many 
people requesting food parcels that never used to request food parcels. Mm. So it's a really, uh, really difficult time right now for a lot of people, so cost of living. But in terms of what you brought up, yeah, of course, people, that would have had an impact because yeah. people look from the outside and see, well, why are all your members leaving? I, I think it's a symptom jack more than a cause so you know when things are going well people tend to rally behind the leader they'll back the leader's captain's mm. calls when things are going badly they feel more licensed to, i suppose um, act out or it becomes harder for the leader to paper over those things look at the national party it used to be full of infighting a lot of the same people now they're all united because they've got, they've got their tail up and the wind's mm. behind their back i think that those things are symptoms of decline rather than causes of decline yeah how do you rate Christopher Luxon's performance this year, Janae? Well, I think he's improved a lot. It wasn't too long ago where Christopher Luxon was making mistakes and Nicola Willis had to come come behind him and, and sweep it up. Uh, he's been a slick performer, very energetic. Uh, I'm still yet to really, I guess, get a sense of that he can sit down and have a, an honest conversation, connect to him, talk to him beyond um, slogans and, and party lines. Does that matter? Yes, it matters. I mean, yeah. I'm pretty worried. Um, you, I, I looked up the 100-day plan to come on your show mm. because I don't really do political commentary. And, um, you know, th there's things in there about repealing the regional fuel tax. Mm. Cool. But then also saying that, um, you know, they want to work on more housing infrastructure. Well, the funds that we use to, to do transport infrastructure come from the regional fuel tax. Um, wanting to get rid of Māori and Pacific student scheme at Auckland University, mm. yet... We have massive waiting times at emergency in Murumua. What would help is if we had more Māori and Pacific workforce there because that's the majority of who are waiting in there, as well as, uh, you know, yes, increase the workforce, but also, you know, more beds. Mm. Um, yeah, Liam, how do you, issues. How do you when, when, I mean, you've, you've gone through that 100-day plan, 49 actions that will define the coalition government's priorities over the next couple of months. How do you rate Christopher Luxon's performance this year? I think that... Uh, he was always an unnatural fit for a co for an opposition leader. I think he there was, he's got some the way that he is. He's got some deficiencies that meant that he wasn't a natural opposition guy. And one of the interestingly, one of the things is he was he wasn't very good at personally attacking people, which is actually a, 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 an ugly thing, but is actually quite important as an opposition leader. I think he'll be he'll be a much stronger performer as prime minister than as opposition mm. leader. So this this election was all about could he can he get there where he can make the best of his talents. And I guess we're just going to have to see that in, mm. in the coming year. But I think he I think he's improved a lot over the course of the year. He's in his element now. It, it took so long to form a government and missing out on that international, you know, APEC, come on, we need to be there. Yeah. How many how many men does it take to form a government? You know, like <laughs> that's a good joke. Yeah. Well that's MMP for you. Yeah. yeah. Bulb, but <laughs> form I, I, a government? So so, oh, so right. Joe, you were talking about the the hundred day plan as well, and and a significant part of the detail in that hundred day plan involves repealing or removing legislation that the previous government had in place. Does that matter? Is that unusual compared to other transfers of power, do you know? Well, I think it's it's expected. Uh, you know, new uh, administration comes in, they want to do things differently. But, you know, the real... it's the, This is the easy bit, right? Getting, getting rid of the legislation. The difficult mm. bit is deciding what to replace it with. And if I just think about Three Waters and RMA, mm. those are two huge pieces of work. Uh, you know, how, how, do we, how do we pay for water? How do we share the costs? You know, how do we make our planning system easier? Uh, the, the real challenge is, is actually figuring out what to replace it with. Mm. Chris Bishop this morning indicating that to fully replace... 
the RMA he thinks will take at least this term. He says he hopes to have that final bill in place by the end of this term. So clearly some of those, you know, the massive reforms are going to take some time. But is it unusual, Liam, to see this much of a previous government's legislative change immediately reversed? Well, what I would say is, for the first time, well, much more than other transfers of power, different changes of, uh, mm. of government, there is a meaningful distinction in the ideology of this government in the last one. Now, often when we have changes of government, it's like at the end of the third term of, of, a, of an existing one, which yeah. is just looking a bit tired, but... You it's know, kind of tinkering a little yeah, bit, and, eh? and change the branding, and, and, hope for the best. And people yeah. are saying, look, you know, um, we're not going to do anything uh, radically different, so you can trust us, but you're bored with this lot, you can trust us. Mm. This is actually a different type of dynamic, and, and it, perhaps it's because it's the first time under MMP there's only been, a t it's been two terms mm. for the incumbent, but there's a meaningful difference between this government and the last one. That, that, I mean, that's that's good or bad, depending on your perspective. Yeah. So Joe was saying... Oh, sorry, sorry Joe. No, I was going to say, you know, when I read their 100-day plan, it reads like a scorned lover. So many uh, mentions of labour in there. You know, I, I didn't... You know, I would rather them focus on what the major issues are for our country. You know, we've got 25,000 people still on the waiting list to get into a home. It's five years to get into a state house if you apply right now like major, major issues, mental health, like what the doctor was speaking about before, that's major for our country. Um, safety, of course, but housing, you know? Yeah. Every week, people are living in their cars. Yeah, intriguing to note that the, the very first bill they'll be putting towards, uh, putting before the, the House will return the Reserve Bank of New Zealand to a single remit focused on inflation, so they're going to lose the dual remit that the previous government introduced. Is that going to make much of a difference, Janae? Yeah, it's a bit of back to the future there with a lot in the 100-day plan and in the agreements. Will it make a difference? Probably not. Uh, that's my view. Different people have different opinions. Uh, the Reserve Bank, even when it had that single mandate, always considered uh, employment, looks at the economy more broadly. And actually, the Reserve Bank is... Uh, laser focused on inflation at the moment. Removing mm -hmm. that employment uh, mention might not make a difference. You know, different parts of the economic cycle, there might be more of a trade-off. I talked to the Deputy Governor just uh, at the end of the week and mm -hmm. he said at the moment that there is definitely no trade-off. Those two targets are, 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 you know, directing the bank to to do what it's doing now, which is hike aggressively and, and keep, keep rates elevated. Yeah, right. So what is the purpose of introducing this then, if that's the case? Virtue signaling. Signal, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it, there's always a dual mandate, at least, right? I mean, the Reserve Bank doesn't exist in isolation, but I suppose it it's, it's tells the Reserve Bank, it tells the public that the government's serious about fighting inflation. Well, well, I mean, is there an argument to be made that if, in a different economic environment, if inflation were much higher, say, like double digits inflation still right now, that actually returning it to a single mandate might change things more than this necessarily will? Yeah, well, I think this, this is a thing when it comes to inflation because expectations are really important. Yeah. If people uh, believe the Reserve Bank will in fact get on top of it, businesses won't lift prices, mm. people's behaviour will adjust accordingly. So there might be a, an argument there, sort of like a, a psychological mm. uh, uh, sort, sort of argument. It'd be interesting to see if there's studies done on that, uh, mm. but I think that that is, that is important. Interestingly, the bank came out super hawkish last week, um, said, you know, we're going to go really hard, and the markets haven't Didn't really... Believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joe, are people in your community concerned uh, about rising unemployment rates? Absolutely. They're concerned that they won't be... Um, the concern is that they're going to be exploited by these new um, you know, reforms coming in with the 90 days mm. because um, people do get exploited. We looked at the lockdown and so many people um, were made to go to work even though 
people in their workplace had COVID, yeah. yet management stayed home. You know what I mean? Like exploitation is rife and it's just only going to increase more with these changes that are coming in. I want to think about dynamics in the coalition. It's been very interesting to me to watch the relationship between David Seymour, Winston Peters and Christopher Luxon. What do you make of Winston Peters' behaviour over the last week or so? Well, the um, contrast couldn't be more stark during that first press conference when they sort of uh, revealed their coalition agreements because Christopher Luxon was, you know, trying to be, be the leader, very slick and professional. Mm. David Seymour also very put together. And Winston Peters just sort of let, let, it, let it rip. And, um, you know, in the past he might do this in a, in a press conference, uh, but not the first one... Um, in, in the role that he's in. The big question is whether he's doing this temporarily to sort of stamp his mark and to say mm. to Christopher Luxon, look, you know, um, you can't control me, and then he'll calm down, or whether this sort of uh, behaviour will continue. Mm. He's also speaking directly to his voters. He is definitely not pandering to uh, the press gallery. What do you guys think? 1996, uh, 2005, 2017, Winston Peters went into government, New Zealand First support plummeted. And I think he's, uh, he's desperate for that not to happen again. So. Last, uh, last time round in 2020, um, New Zealand First made a serious effort to disengage from Labour and to attack Labour, and I think that they think they left it too late. Mm. So I think he's going to try and be the squeaky wheel the whole way through the term. Sorry, Christopher Luxon, it's going to be hard. Joe, what do you think? Um, well, my dad really liked Winston Peters, uh, but I just think when you're in that position of Deputy Prime Minister, can you just please focus on the issues that need to be addressed for our country? Because we've been through a lot. We've been through, you know, the lockdown. We've been through the floods. And people are suffering. And, and that's, you know, a wide range of our community, not just uh, those on benefits or low incomes. It's also our middle yeah. class. Hey, thank you so much for being with us, guys. We really appreciate it. Have a, have a wonderful summer break and uh, look forward to seeing you in 2024. Liam, Janae and Joe. After the break on Q&A... There is still no publicly funded assessment for kids with dyslexia, but we're going to show you the kura taking things into their own hands. The Education Ministry says it's committed to shaping an education system that delivers fair outcomes, but diagnosis of learning disorders remains out of reach for some students. Kura kaupapa face even more barriers, with educators calling out for more Māori interventions. But one kura says it's tired of waiting, instead creating a te reo Māori dyslexia screening tool to find out which students might need more help with reading. Kate Nicol-Williams with this story. Living and learning as Māori. The key to Kura Kopapa students building confidence in who they are and where they're from. But some students need extra help with their learning, and getting that can be difficult. There's no publicly funded assessments for dyslexia, a condition which makes reading a challenge. And there's long waits for other disorders to be diagnosed. We had a tamaiti early last year that we suspected um, may have been uh, autistic. And so we approached Ministry 
and um, the local educational psychologist we were told it was around about a three year wait. No, Tamaiti's got three years to wait in an education system. This is the Tamaiti or child she's talking about. Amongst the classroom chatter, Ziva Huani Karaitiana is focused on his task. Last year looked very different. He was upsetting his whole classroom and just having these outbursts in class. At nine years old, her caring boy was pushing his peers and trying to walk out the kura gates. One of the teachers actually told me it was mainly during um, reading and writing during the actual classwork. Any other time he was fine. She sought outside tuition and the kura paid $1,300 for assessment through a child psychologist, a cost that some kura and Fano can't cover. If it wasn't for the total school of the kura and um, the principal then, and his teachers, we probably would have just get, got left behind. He was diagnosed with autism and dyslexia. His mum says the weight he could have faced is unacceptable. What would have those three years been like for you guys? The way he was going, he probably wouldn't be at the school anymore. The kura didn't stop there, creating a screening tool with a dyslexia consultant to understand where Zifa and other students need more help with their reading. I've been in this kura 15 years and we've, um, we've never had a dyslexic student, so because you don't know what you don't know. It's believed to be the first Te Reo Māori dyslexia assessment for kura. To give them a test that's in English, is just, it just does a disservice. Although he's bilingual, I think um, delivering something like that in his own language, where he's more comfortable in Te Reo Māori, um, would be way more beneficial for both him and, and the ones doing the assessments, because you'll probably get more out of it. Most students between years 3 and 12 will be part of the pilot test so the kura can build a baseline for achievement. 20 tamariki have been assessed so far with three children indicating dyslexia. So it's not taking the place of an official diagnosis from a child psychologist but it sounds like it's getting in earlier in a system that's currently overloaded. Yeah, it's definitely not like a formal diagnosis. It will give us an indication though. In 2019, the Education Ministry announced its Learning Support Action Plan. One of the priorities was creating screening tools for learning difficulties like dyslexia. These would be available in both English and Te Reo Māori. But so far, this hasn't been funded. Wairarapa are willing to share their tool once it's fully developed. The country's first kura kaupapa says it's a groundbreaking development. Tumaki and kura throughout the motu, kura iwi, kura kaupapa Māori will be absolutely over the moon to hear what Wairarapa are taking the initiative. And, you know, the Ministry of Education, you know, you know if you ask me, well, they need to run in there, sprint in there and get behind their kura. Hoani Waititi's used to making do with what they have too, but the lack of resourcings felt in multiple areas, how there's no gymnasium for the primary and high school, and not enough learning support. Teachers do their best to cater to the wide range of students, but difficulties can remain undiagnosed. We've also got tamariki who are strong, um, who are strong enough to create their own systems and strong enough to create their own strategies, but there will be those that will fall through the gaps, and, and 
you know, it's tough. It's tough because because we we you know one one we can't we don't have the means to to be able to ascertain where the tamaiti is at. He's hopeful about a $40 million project involving the Education Ministry and Kura organisations. This will fund the creation of a learning support coordination system that aligns with Te Ao Māori, the Māori worldview. When you hear um, they working alongside the Runanga, those of us within Kurakaupa Māori, Hwani Waititi, we go yay, you know, because we know it's not going to just be some ad hoc thing that's put together or a straight translation or something else that just, here you go, Kurakaupa Māori, now be quiet, you know, you can go over there into that corner and be quiet because you're just getting a bit noisy um, while we're working over here. Back in Wairarapa, staff are feeling positive about the changes they're making. Apart from the testing, they're switching up the classroom layout to better suit students and are referring to the Maramataka or Māori lunar calendar to guide their timetable. It's allowed us to be so much calmer and so much more responsive to our tamariki. <laughs> Zephyr Huani's now much more confident in reading and writing. What's spell C-O-F-F-E-E? Coffee. Yeah, coffee bean sack. He actually loves learning. Um, it's just, I think, maybe because no one understood why he was having so much outbursts. He didn't even understand, I don't think. The impact of a diagnosis and an environment that nurtures who he is, setting him up for a bright future. Kate Nickel-Williams with that story. Hey, Aku and we're back after the break. Cool, me too. That is Q&A for this week and for this year. Before we wrap, a couple of quick thanks. I want to thank New Zealand On Air for their support in making Q&A. I want to thank our production team, Ira, Siobhan, Fina, Cara and Alex, and our bosses, Laura and Phil, all of the studio crew and production team who make this show every week. And finally, I want to thank you for watching. I am under no illusions. There's a lot competing for your attention these days, and I'm humbled by the number of New Zealanders who value the stories, subjects and interviews we bring you every week. I feel incredibly privileged to work on this show. We're delighted to confirm Q&A will be back for 2024. So until then, have a great summer, a great holiday. Nā mihi o te tauho, happy new year. Hei te rātou. We will see you in 2024. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.